In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, first of all, we thank you for the rain. We ask for more. But we ask you for blessings also in understanding the scriptures that we are going to be covering today. Help us then again to open our minds and hearts and set aside cares that are not involved here in what we are talking about today so that we can listen to you, to your spirit speaking to us through sacred scripture. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today to truly understand what it is that you want us to hear. So we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Uh, before we begin our regular class, uh, material that is, how many of you watched the program last night on KBIE on the Jews? Uh, I only watched one hour. I didn't know that there was two hours. Uh, but I understand uh, that it's going to be repeated this afternoon, the second half or the second hour, uh, around three o'clock, did you say? Yeah. So we can catch up. So if you haven't heard it, uh, I recommend it. Now, having said that, I found nothing wrong with what was said last night. In fact, I thought it covered a lot of things that we have talked about here. In fact, even when we talked about the city of Aswan, or its former name, um, that was brought out uh, in a very interesting way. But knowing me, you know, what <laughs> I got to pick everything apart. Yeah. It wasn't what was said. It was what was not said that I found interesting. Um, and I, I don't want to go into a lot of it because I don't want to spoil it for anyone that is going to pick it up and haven't, haven't seen it yet. But if and when you watch this, or if you watch it, listen for the things that are not said. Because there's plenty of them. The main thing here is the emphasis on the law. As the gentleman that spoke mostly through this program, his whole emphasis was on the worship of the law. Now, when you watch that, compare that to Christianity and Catholicism, where our emphasis is not on the law, even though we have some rules and regulations, every organization has to have some rules and regulations, but our emphasis is on Jesus Christ and a personal relation with him and an understanding of what he did for us and what he what his role was in God's plan of salvation. The Jews were part of God's plan of salvation too, up to the point where they rejected God himself in the form of Jesus Christ when he stood right in front of them. And then they seemed to depart off in another direction. So it's interesting 
how they look at God as sort of up there still on the mountain and they don't want to get too close. But they will observe all the rules and regulations as if that was all there was to it. Uh, so sort of keep that in mind as you go through and watch that program. There's supposed to be uh, five different or six different segments uh, of it. Now, is that weekly or weekly? Uh, well, as they say, uh, look at your TV guide to find out, you know. Okay. All right. Uh, KVIE, yeah, Channel 6, I believe, at least is uh, Isaiah. 6th century Isaiah, okay? Last week, we began what is commonly known as 3rd Isaiah in chapter 56, 56 through 59, last week, all right? And we covered many subjects. If you look on the back of your homework assignment uh, for this coming week, you'll see how the subjects and the references that we covered last week are going to be repeated and discussed next week again, but in reverse order. If you see how last week we started out with chapter 56, we ended up with 59. Today we're going to be covering 60 through 62. And then next week we will start and finish with 63 through 66. Those chapters of next week, 63 through 66, cover almost the same subjects, but in different words, a little different emphasis, uh, and of course, in reverse order. Now, what does this tell you? That there, first of all, had to be some thought given to the writing and the placement of these passages in this particular order. This is called a chiasma. It is the same word that we get our word chasm from. Okay? Meaning a very deep valley, uh, almost a ravine of some kind. And that is what we will be discussing today, are the three chapters that are at sort of the bottom of this deep valley, you might say. And then next week we pick it up again <coughs> and go towards um, the ending of uh, Third Isaiah. Right. The only reason I'm bringing that out today is that I don't want you to read uh, the last three or four chapters here and say to yourself all along the way, See, didn't we cover some of this stuff before? Yeah. Because, yes, you did. But there's a reason, and we'll get into the reasons uh, for that next week. Okay. So, I just wanted to give you a little bit of explanation there 
so that you can see. Again, there has to be a, a purpose for doing this. So quite often we think that when writers uh, of history, particularly history, write it, it's in the chronological order of time. Well, that is true in modern sense, but not in ancient writings as this is. Uh, in fact, there's many Bible scholars that believe that this was not uh, written, uh, these last five or six, ch four chapters rather, was not written by third Isaiah, but possibly by second Isaiah. Uh, I feel that there's no point in sort of mulling that over in your mind because what good is it going to do whether who it was written by. Uh, much of the Old Testament was not written by the people to whom it is given credit. And we know that. And what difference does it make? I always say, and you've heard me say this many times, and I will continue to say it many times, you can learn a great deal from the book Gone with the Wind, learning about the effect of the Civil War on the people of its time. Even though the characters of that book are fictional characters, the story behind it is certainly not fiction. So, look at it that way. Much of uh, the Old Testament is written by somebody else. And when I say there are certain books of the Old Testament that are stories, I hate to use the word fiction, that are stories and not history, I've heard people gasp that, you know, it was like I was saying that it was a dirty story or a book or something of that kind. But that's not true. Uh, you take the books of Tobit, Esther, Ruth, um, 1 and 2 Maccabees, and a few others. Those are, and the book of Daniel, of course, is one way out there. Um, those are stories that have, that are inspired by God because of the message that is within them. And therefore, that's why they're included in the Old Testament um, Bible. And to some degree, there's a little of that in the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation. So, don't be put off if somebody says that some of the Old Testament is fiction or stories. Just to say, yes, that might be true, but it's because they are inspired by God because of the message that's contained within. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's go on to chapter uh, 60 and 62, or through 62. How many of you read this? Oh, I'm sure you all read it, of course. I'm just certain of that. But we're totally puzzled by what it said. Chapters 60 through 62 
are sort of at the bottom, you might say, of this chiasma uh, in the placement of within cha- uh, Third Isaiah. Excuse me, I'm a little bit uh, frustrated today for other reasons, and just try to overlook it. Um, What what the uh, what Isaiah is trying to do here is give the people hope, because as we've said before, when they returned from Babylon, they found their glorious idea of Jerusalem and Judah and the temple totally shattered. Now they really knew that before they left Babylon. I guess they just when they saw it in reality, it was more shocking than they had expected. Uh, And so the problem arose then between the people who returned from Babylon and the people who never left. The people who never left felt that they were being imposed upon because the people who returned were expecting a great deal more than what they found. And so you have this problem of expectations being far greater than what could be resolved for people that return. And then you had the problem of people trying to move back into places where they came from when others had already taken their place. You know, nothing sits still after 50 or 60, or during 50, 60 years. Any location is going to change considerably over a period of time. So you can understand the frustrations uh, on both sides. And what Isaiah is trying to do is to give these people hope to look beyond what they have. That God is promising a great deal. I think he gets a little carried away with some of uh, his wording. And a lot of it is not going to be fulfilled until much, much later. uh, Until the time of, of Christ and even afterward. But nevertheless, this is the intent of Isaiah, is to give the people hope. Now, within these same chapters are some very beautiful passages that have been picked up, and there's a couple of them that have been repeated by Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament. And there's other things here that uh, found their way into the New Testament and that is because the hope, the message of hope that is being given by Isaiah is not truly realized until after the time of Christ. So, let's, let's begin. Some of the wording here is a little difficult to understand uh, not because of what it says but because of what it is trying to project. Okay. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has dawned upon you. Though darkness covers the earth and thick, thick clouds the peoples, upon you the Lord will dawn, and over you his glory will be seen. Now, if you just think about it, the words there means that it will happen, but not that it has happened. All right? Different in timing. Nations shall walk by your light, and kings by the radiance of your dawning. Rise your eyes and look about. They all gather and come to you, your sons from afar, your daughters in the arms of their nurses, and then shall see, you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall throb and overflow, for the riches of the sea shall be poured out before you. The wealth of nations shall come to you. Caravans and camels shall cover you, dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba shall come, bearing gold and frankincense. Now, where have you heard this before? It's the Christmas story. Yes, by all means, the idea of the three wise men uh, bringing gifts to the infant child. And what is missing here? Myrrh. Gold, frankincense, no myrrh. Why not? Hmm? Yes. Yes. Myrrh is a burial spice. So that would not have been part of the hopeful scene that Israel, or, or rather, that Isaiah is trying to project. Okay? Gold and frankincense, yes. Myrrh, no. Okay. All the flocks of Cater shall be gathered for you. The rams of whatever this is shall serve your, your needs. Some of those words uh, and names, uh, you know, are just almost beyond pronunciation. They will be acceptable offerings on my altar, and I will glorify my glorious house. Well, glorious house is no longer in existence. Uh, it was partially rebuilt, you might say, but it took quite a while. In fact, the program last night mentions 80 years that it took for the temple to be rebuilt in a form uh, that was usable. Uh, well, you know, there's nothing to my knowledge that would support that, but it sounds somewhat realistic. Who are these that fly along like a cloud, like doves to their coops? The vessels of the coastlands are gathered with the ships of Tarshish in the lead. Remember, previously the ships of Tarshish had been destroyed. To bring your children from afar, their silver and their gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God, for the Holy One of Israel who has glorified you. Uh, again, this is just a very uh, encouraging sign, uh, but not too realistic. Uh, 
Foreigners shall rebuild your walls. Their kings shall minister to you. Though in my wrath I struck you, yet in my goodwill I have shown you mercy. This is God speaking to the people through the prophet. All right. Uh, again, foreigners will build your walls. Well, the only foreigners that will build the walls is uh, through the prophet. Well, not through the prophet, but uh, through the representative, you might say, of Cyrus the Great. This is Nehemiah we're talking about. Nehemiah is the one that was responsible, primarily responsible, for rebuilding most of the city of Jerusalem and uh, the temple. Okay, In fact, this was mentioned in that program last night. Uh, so that would be in reference to foreigners uh, rebuilding the walls. And that did happen. Um, but there again, it was somewhat of a hasty way. The temple had to be totally rebuilt, and it was uh, not until the first century uh, B.C. that Herod the Great rebuilt the temple. Okay. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress all together uh, to bring beauty to my sanctuary and glory to the place where I stand. Now, this, of course, is the rebuilding of the temple, but it took a long time, long after uh, Isaiah was uh, no longer. The children of your oppressors shall come, bowing before you. All those who despise you shall bow low at your feet, and they shall call you city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Well, Unfortunately, that never did happen. No longer forsaken and hated, with no one passing through. For now I make you the pride of the ages, a joy from generation to generation. You you shall suck uh, the milk of nations, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. Anyone know where that progression also is? In the book of Daniel, yes. The statue in the book of Daniel is made in that order. All right. Gold, silver, bronze, and then iron. Now, why? Gold was the most precious of all metals, still is. Silver, next. Bronze, iron, and so forth. But in the statue uh, that is depicted in the book of Daniel, the feet, were made of iron mixed with clay. Iron and clay do not mix. And therefore, the intent or the message there is that the feet were weak and therefore the statue would crumble 
in time, which of course it did. The feet were really symbolic of the ten divisions of the Greek Empire remaining after the death of Alexander the Great. Five of those were in North Africa, and the, five, the other five were in uh, the Mideast, including Jerusalem, and that was the cause of the Maccabean Wars, uh, which were in the second century B.C. Okay. I will appoint peace, your governor, and justice, your ruler. No longer shall violence be heard in your land, or plunder and ruin within your borders. For you shall call your walls salvation, and your gates praise. Again, this is somewhat uh, overly optimistic, um, but it is to give the people hope, to inspire them to pick up and go on. No longer shall the sun be your light by day, nor shall the brightness of the moon give you light by night. Rather, the Lord will be your light forever. Your God will be your glory. No longer will your sun set or your moon wane. For the Lord will be your light forever, and the days of your grieving will be over. Your people will all be just. Now, those almost the same words are in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And it is used in conjunction with, you might say, the same kinds of circumstances. The persecution, the book of Revelation was written during the time of the Roman persecution of Christians in the latter part of the first century A.D. Almost under the same circumstances as the Jewish people returning to Israel from Babylon. The idea there, of course, is not to look at what your surroundings actually are on this earth. It is to look forward to the time when God will be your recompense, uh, will be your reward in heaven. Uh, let's see, verse, verse 21. Your people will all be just for all time. They will possess the land. Well, they didn't possess the land at that time and never did up until 1948. They are the shoot that I planted, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan the smallest, a mighty nation. For I, the Lord, will swiftly accomplish these things when the time comes. So, it isn't something that is happening right then and there. It is something that will happen in the future. Okay. Um, of course, the future in this case was quite a ways off. You can see, I think you can see that 
the exaggeration of the good things of life that are to come here are more to give the people an idea that God is with them and that if they look to him alone, everything else will kind of fall into its proper place. And that's the message that we should all think about today. It works the same way today. Chapter 61. Uh, this is Isaiah speaking, okay? Not God through Isaiah, but Isaiah speaking. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That is Isaiah, all right? Because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the afflicted, to bring, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, and to announce a year of favor from the Lord. Where else do we hear that? In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is preaching in Nazareth, uh, uh, yeah, in Nazareth, uh, remember the story, well, in fact, why don't we go to that, um, Luke chapter 4, It's, this is Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. This is after his 40 days in the desert, you know, uh, sort of in a, in a retreat, etc. And uh, the experience of the temptation of the, of the devil and so forth and so on. He goes first to his hometown. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and that is Nazareth, of course, and his reputation spread throughout the region. He was teaching in their synagogues, uh, and all were loud in his praise. He came to Nazareth, where he had been reared, and entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, as he was in the habit of doing. He stood up to do the reading. When the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed him, he unrolled in the scroll and found the passage where it was written. And this is what we just quoted from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and therefore he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring glad tidings to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and release uh, to prisoners and to announce a year of favor from the Lord. It's the same kind of message of hope that Isaiah is trying to give. And in some ways, Jesus is trying to give that same message to his hometown people. Unfortunately, all they could see was this little kid that they knew uh, running around, you know, the son of Joseph and, and Mary, and they weren't really paying much attention to it, okay? Because, you know, where did he get all that information? He's just Joseph's son, okay? Uh, 
And that's why, of course, he announces that uh, no prophet is without honor except in his own town. Give you a little side story on that. My son was an admiral uh, in the service for many years. And one day I was at his house and he comes home with all of this fancy, you know, uniform on with the gold braid and the buttons and all of that stuff. And he's real hurried to take it all off and so forth. I said, well, what's your hurry? And he says, well, I got to go out and cut the lawn. <laughs> so later he's out there and I yell from the back deck, hey, there's my son. He's out there, the mad mold. He's cutting the lawn, you know. And he goes, eh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Now, there's a couple things mentioned in this paragraph or this passage here that I think is rather interesting. <coughs> he has sent me to bring good news. Well, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, and to the afflicted. Well, in... Isaiah's time, there were many afflicted, you might say. To bind up the brokenhearted. Well, there was many of those, too. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Well, now, of course, they've been released to the prisoners. To announce a year of favor from the Lord. What does that mean? Anyone? A little bit of story behind that statement. And, of course, when Jesus used it, it was understood. Because by that time, people had understood the wording of the Old Testament scriptures to the point where all you had to use or say was a few words of a given uh, scripture and people would immediately pick it up and understand where it came from. Okay. Now, if we go to the book of Leviticus, a little background here is remember we said that in Jewish culture, still is, there are three sacred numbers. Seven, three, seven, and twelve. Seven was the most important because it was a complete, a completeness, you might say. That's why we have seven days of the week and many other sevens uh, throughout Old Testament scripture. Um, Seven sons and so forth in the various stories. Every seven years, there was what was called a jubilee year. Okay. And then, if you have seven times seven, you had 49 jubilee years. Then two periods of that would be 98. Yeah, 98. All right. Well, what happens to that one year that is sort of left hanging? Okay, to make 100 is what I'm getting at. Okay, I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter 25, 
says seven weeks of years, that is seven years times seven is 49 years, okay? Shall you count seven times seven so that the seven cycles amount to 49 years? Then on the 10th day of the seventh month, let the trumpet resound. On this, the day of atonement, the trumpet blast shall re-echo throughout your land. This 50th year you shall make sacred by proclaiming liberty in the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee year for you when every one of you shall return to his own property, every one of you uh, to his own family estate. In this 50th year, your year of jubilee you shall not sow, nor shall you reap the aftergrowth or pick the grapes from the untrimmed vines. Since this is a jubilee year which shall be sacred for you, you may not eat of its produce, produce except as taken directly from the field. And now it goes on and on. In other words, the 50th year is a sacred year and special observances uh, and a jubilee and so forth and so on. That is what is meant here. A year of favor from the Lord. Okay. So that goes back to Leviticus 25. Yes, ma'am. Well, individual years, yes, they they could calculate. They already had uh, the idea of the moon and the stars and their uh, annual, uh, you know, return um, and so forth. So years could be kept, um, but calendars as to trace back when something happened, no, they couldn't do that. Um, now, at the time of Christ, yes, because Julius Caesar is the one that established a universal calendar, a universal meaning throughout the Roman, not the Roman Empire, but the, uh, well, yeah, the Roman Empire, really, you might say. Uh, but that's as far as it went. Uh, at Isaiah's time, there was no calendar. That was universally accepted. Okay. Yes. That's right. They could count and keep track of uh, various years, uh, but they could not go back uh, in history and uh, record how many years to a from a previous event. Huh. Let's see. I want to just read that over so we have a little continuity here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, me in this case is Isaiah. Because the Lord has anointed me, he has sent me to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners to announce a year of favor from the Lord 
and a day of vindication by our God. Well, vindication in this case, um, you know, it really never came about. To comfort all who mourn, to place on those who mourn in Zion a diadem instead of ashes, and to give them oil of gladness instead of mourning, a glorious mantle instead of faint spirit. Can you see the idea of trying to give these people hope that things will get better because the Lord is behind them? And we go on with this same idea. They will be called oaks of justice, the planting of the Lord to show his glory. They shall rebuild the ancient ruins, the former waste they shall raise up, and restore the desolate cities, devastations of generation upon generation. And those things did happen over a period of time, but not to the um, the degree and the hope uh, that the people wanted. Strangers shall stand ready to pasture your flocks. Foreigners shall be your farmers and vine dressers. You yourselves shall be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God, and you shall be called... <laughs> Ministers of our God, you shall be called. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Well, unfortunately, those things never did happen. Because their shame was twofold, and disgrace was proclaimed their portion. They will possess twofold in their own land. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Wow. All right, to go on. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense. An everlasting covenant I will make with them. Well, that is something that uh, didn't happen. In fact, the covenant with the Jewish people was withdrawn after the rejection of Jesus Christ. But of course, that's jumping uh, three or four hundred years ahead of of this. But again, it's part of this idea of hope that he is trying to instill in them. Their offspring shall be renowned among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them. They are offspring the Lord has blessed. Hmm. In the middle of that page uh, 161, there's a comment here that what the prophet describes is the priestly role that the people of the New Jerusalem will play in regard to the nations. These priests, quote-unquote, will lead the nations to serve Judah's God. The rebuilding of the temple and the renewal of 
priestly service do not appear to be priorities to the prophet. What is more significant for him is the renewal of Judahite society on the basis of justice. That word Judahite is not used very often, uh, and I'm surprised that this writer has used it a few times in this book. But that is what the Jews were called by the pagan nations, those Jews who came back from Babylon. They were referred to as Judahites because they came from the land of Judah. But gradually over a period of time, uh, that word was cut down to Jew. So the word Jew comes from the word Judahite, which disappeared over a period of time. It does not come from Jerusalem, as many people believe. And it is not... It is not a derogatory word. Quite often people will say, uh, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I used the word Jew. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what they refer to themselves as. Remember, there's three ways of looking at it. Nationality is, today, today I'm speaking of, nationality today is Israeli. The the religion, the national religion of Israelis is Judaism. The language is Hebrew. But in Old Testament times, those those three things kind of were used interchangeably. They are not today. Nationality is Israeli. Religion is Judaism. Language is Hebrew. Actually, if you live in Israel, you will hear that most of the people speak English. Hebrew is not the spoken language of the country. It is the legal language, it is the religious language, but it is not the generally spoken language, except perhaps for older people. Yes, it is taught. Yes, but it's taught more like we would learn Latin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Let's go on. Uh, verse ten. I will rejoice heartily in the Lord, and my being exalts in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of justice like a bridegroom adorned with a diadem as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now, where have you heard that before? Betty? Yes. Yes. For those of you who take the magazine Magnificat or have a special devotion to Mary, in her visit to Elizabeth, right after she uh, becomes pregnant with Christ through the uh, Holy Spirit, 
she goes to her cousin Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist, to help out because Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Okay? And as they meet, this is all in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, as they meet, Mary then utters these words along with others. Many people think, oh, now Mary just made up this beautiful prayer. Well, unfortunately, I hate to, you know, dash your hopes, but Mary did not make it up. All of the phrases that she used came from Old Testament literature or scripture. Okay? But it's interesting how she pulled from different sources and used them because they reflect her particular role in God's plan of salvation. Yes, yes, yeah. So I think, you know, even though these three chapters um, are, you might say, over-exaggerations of the message of hope, what is taken out of them and put into the New Testament gives the same kind of message, but in a more realistic way. Because there is background uh, to support it. As the earth brings forth its shoots and a garden makes its seeds spring up, so will the Lord God make justice spring up and praise before all the nations. Again, that reflects the emphasis by this particular prophet on justice the living according to a just and equitable or loving society. Going on to chapter 62. A new name for Zion. Well, that is an interesting point all in itself. For Zion's sake, I will not be silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep still until her vindication shines forth like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. Nation shall behold your vindication and all your kings your glory. For you shall be called by a new name, bestowed by the mouth of the Lord. You shall be a glorious crown in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No more shall you be called forsaken, nor your land desolate. The whole idea of a new name in ancient Jewish culture was to convey a whole idea of a new beginning. And from that, we have taken the uh, idea of a new name. For example, when a couple is married, the uh, 
the lady usually takes the the man's or the husband's uh, name. This is not any law or requirement. This is a cultural thing. A generally accepted change, signifying a new unity of husband and wife. Um, when we were confirmed years ago, I don't think they do it much anymore, uh, there was always a new name given. Even uh, infants being baptized, officially in Catholic countries, in Catholic culture, uh, a child was left unnamed until he or she was baptized. This is infants, of course, I'm speaking of. So the idea of a new name signifies a new beginning, a major change. Yes, sir? In a way, yes, that's a good point. I never thought about that, but uh, yes, uh, the idea of God's changing people's names. Uh, there's a little more to it than that, but the idea of God changing people's names, beginning with Abraham and his wife Sarah. You recall, if you read the story in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, their names were Abram and Sarai. But God, after making this covenant with uh, Abraham and his wife, changed their name from Abram to Abraham and from Sarai to Sarah to signify a change and a certain specific responsibility in God's plan of salvation. And you have this in other people within uh, the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. The idea of, for example, John the Baptist, which we mentioned just a little while ago, uh, his name was dictated by the angel uh, to his father Zechariah before he was born. Jesus' name was also dictated uh, to Joseph before he was born. Uh, Peter's name was Simon and it was changed to Peter. Paul's name was Saul and changed to Paul. All of these sig uh, to signify a, a major change in their life and a special role in God's plan of salvation. Okay? And there were uh, many others throughout the Old Testament where this same thing happened. All of this is to this idea of changing names is to really signify a new beginning. Okay. Something new being given. Um, and in this case, we're talking about Zion. Well, Zion was never the name of a place. It was a name of a movement or a concept. Now, unfortunately, that has changed significantly, but not to the better. Today, Zion is not really connected with Judaism any longer. It is a nationalistic movement. So it is more of a political movement than it is a religious movement. Okay. So if you're... Is that why you speak the monarch of the... I don't know if it's a monarch or not, where some 
Uh, well, depending on how they use it, uh, the Zionists wouldn't think it was derogatory. They would be proud of it. But that. No, no, no. That's just a segment. That is a political party belief. Okay. Uh, so you got to be a little careful there. But going back to this time period of Isaiah, uh, even Christ did not use, I don't, I can't think of any place in the New Testament where the word Isaiah, uh, Zionism is used. Uh, I just I can't think of any because it pretty much died out. Uh, let's see, it died out really um, just before the Maccabean Wars, which was in the middle of the second century BC. See, no more shall you be called forsaken, nor your land called desolate, but you shall be called my delight. Is um, you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land espoused. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be espoused. For as a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. Now, this is where it, this whole idea of the bride comes into play. Okay. The bride of God was Judaism until they rejected Jesus Christ. And then that was sort of transferred over, not right away, but over a period of time. And today the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. And I, in some ways it, it uh, is appropriate. For as a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. Well, the builder of the church is Christ. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. And that, of course, reflects how God looks upon the church today. And the church will always be in existence until the end of time. Regardless of the many attempts, you might say, to tear it apart or discredit it, uh, which has happened frequently throughout the 2,000 years since the time of Christ, the church has remained and grown stronger, and it is the largest continuous operation uh, of any organization in the world. You ever think of it that way? The largest continuous organization in the world. Upon your walls, Jerusalem, I have stationed sentinels. By day and by night, they shall never be silent. You who are to remain the Lord, take no rest. I'm sorry. 
you are to remind the Lord, take no rest, and give him no rest, until he reestablishes Jerusalem and makes it the praise of the earth. Well, Jerusalem, when you think about it, if it wasn't for the tourism of people going there to see the places where Christ lived and died, what would Jerusalem be? It has no major industry. It has no resources. It isn't even what you would call a beautiful city. The only attraction that it has is the place where Jesus Christ lived and died. Well, it is, yes. The Wailing Wall, of course. Uh, but, you know, the Wailing Wall is a, a just a wall. It is the remains of Solomon's temple, not the temple that was built by uh, uh, Herod the Great, Solomon's temple. And it was not, it was covered up in many, you know, for centuries, uh, primarily by the Turks. And that was really part of the purpose of the Crusades beginning in the uh, 11th century. Okay. Uh, yes, the Wailing Wall is a very sacred uh, place for the Jewish people. Okay. Let's continue. The Lord has borne by his right hand and by his mighty arm. No more will I give your grain as food to your enemies. Nor shall foreigners drink the wine for which you toil. But those who harvest shall eat and praise the Lord. Those who gather shall drink in my holy courts. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare a way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Raise up a standard over the nations. For the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth Say to Zion, see your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. For they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, cared for, a city not forsaken. Oh my. It all sounds good, but it is so uh, idealistic, you might say, and so overdone. But there is a reason. Remember that in Jewish ancient Jewish culture, exaggeration was always uh, a major element, uh, particularly in the written word. And this, of course, is... Uh, the method of communicating messages of this kind to be written out and given to the people. Um, so exaggeration was important, and I think the people knew that. Um, 
they realized that even though these all sounded very nice and cozy and warm, fuzzy words, uh, they were somewhat unrealistic. The people in the days of Isaiah uh, may not have been advanced in many ways as people are today, but that didn't mean that they were ignorant. Uh, it just means that they had different cultures and different forms of belief. And one of their characteristics was exaggeration. Any questions? Yes. There was, yes, by all means. Yeah, loose comment was that there must have been a lot of strife, as he says, going on at this time. And there was. Again, the contention that existed between those who returned and those who never left. You can see that, you know, if a major portion of Roseville uh, was deported, you might say, uh, to another country, Siberia or whatever. And then after 50 years, they come back. Well, uh, within that 50-year time period, adjustments had to be made. People had to go on and live and restructure their life as well as their housing and so forth. But when the people came back and flooded the city again, a lot of people who had never been here before, but they came with uh, the returned exiles, you can understand the problems that that created in itself. And that is what, of course, the prophet is trying to combat, is to give the people... Uh, hope and understanding that the Lord is still behind them. And what can we take out of all of that? The Lord is still behind us whenever we have problems. Gene? Well, Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, that's a very good point. Vatican II. Yeah, the 50 years since Vatican II. Actually, 50, what? Two years, because it, Vatican, well. Now, it won't be until next year will be 50 years. Yeah. Uh, 1965 is when it closed. It was, uh, started in December of 62 and went to December of 65. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but the dissemination of all of its findings and the rules and so forth and so on uh, did not come about uh, very easily. And again, I think the comparison is valid there. Uh, the implementation of the changes of Vatican II are still being felt 
and are still being ignored by a lot of people. How many of you <coughs> more mature people uh, still uh, shudder a little bit if you uh, have a hot dog on Saturday or Friday? Okay. <laughs> Don't you still remember a little bit? Oh, I couldn't do this years ago. Yeah. Uh, sure. Okay. Well, that's one of the good things that came about. Okay. All right. Yes, uh, you're talking about the people who never left did those things. Yes. Yeah, the, yeah, the people who never left but did they, some of those abominable things. Yeah, and, and guys, when the old guys came back, they said, hey, they straighten this thing up, and they were not very pleased. Very much so. Yes, good point. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, as I said before, in previous classes, uh, was written, uh, you might say, almost 200 years before this time period. It was written during the time of the strife in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel in about the 8th or ninth century. Uh, but because of the things that were going on there, it was not accepted. They didn't like the regulations and so forth. The whole idea of the book of Deuteronomy, which I dearly love, um, was put together to combat the evils of the monarchy in the 8th and 9th century B.C., particularly in the northern kingdom. It took the sayings of Moses that were handed down verbally as well as many other things that Moses never said, but could have been attributed to him. And it was put into this book as a way of combating uh, the degradation, the apostasy, and so forth of the people of the 8th and 9th century in primarily uh, the kingdom of Israel, that is the northern kingdom. Okay? Then, when that was overrun, when the northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., uh, many people fled to the southern kingdom, which was almost as bad, but still was open and free to the, to the Jewish people coming in. Well, the book of Deuteronomy wasn't accepted there in the southern kingdom either. And so it was sort of hidden in the temple. And it was taken to Babylon um, with the exiles, particularly with Ezekiel. In the first siege of Jerusalem, which is in 597 B.C., Jerusalem wasn't uh, totally overrun by the Babylonians until ten years later uh, in 587 B.C. Yeah. Um, and, of course, while in Jerusalem, as we've said before, uh, these little um, synagogues, houses of teaching, which is what a synagogue really is, become the house of prayer later on. But it started out as a house of teaching, and what did they teach was the book of Deuteronomy. So that when they came back, they had finally gotten the word of religion in Babylon, 
and when they came back, they were uh, adamantly uh, in agreement to stick to the new laws. They finally realized through this why they got to Babylon in the first place and why the northern kingdom was totally wiped out by the Assyrians and that was because of their own sins. All right, so when they came back, they were adamant about following the law, whereas the people that were left behind and never got or were never taken to Babylon had developed a lot of abominable practices. And that was what was mentioned in that uh, video last night. So that in itself set up a lot of the tension that we see and read today. Okay. So um, it's interesting in a way that uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 29 particularly was what was taken to Babylon and then uh, chapters 1 through 11 and the remainder 29 through the end was added on later by the priest Ezra. Uh, it was due to a lot of collecting of additional information and wording and teachings and so forth that could be attributed to Moses. But Moses did not sit down and write that book, which many Protestant uh, people still believe and the Jewish people still believe. No. It has been proven over and over that there's a lot of things in there. For example, the parceling out of lands after Joshua and Caleb brought the Israelites into the promised land in the first place uh, and God set up all of these little uh, areas that each of the tribes would be assigned. Uh, Moses had no idea of that at all. So how could he have written the details in, that come out in the book of Deuteronomy about that? So uh, it's a very, very interesting book. Now, that brings me up to another uh, subject. <laughs> I can go on forever, you know. Uh, what is it that you people would like to study and discuss next time around? Okay. Uh, we'll leave that up to you till next week. We'll get into that in a little bit more detail. But... I'd like you to give it some thought. Okay. Um, we have talked quite a bit about the Old Testament. Uh, I think it would be a good idea to go to the New Testament and pick up there. Um, but I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. We probably won't make any specific decisions next week. Um, but I'd like to take it all into consideration and uh, think and pray about it for a few months over the summer. Okay. Any questions? Uh, I'm sorry? Would you come in? Well, yeah, Jose's question is... Uh, is it wrong when Catholics are idealistic and not realistic? Um, 
No, well, it depends on the subject, you know, the individual subjects and just how far does somebody go. But I think idealism has some advantages. It shows hope. Um, but you've got to be realistic at the same time. Yeah. It's got to be a balance. Balance is very important in many respects. Our life should always be focused on God, but at the same time realize that while we're here on earth, we have to deal with what's in front of us. And, you know, it's, it's hard to have that blend, but balance is very important. Well, yes, they exaggerated, but that was a cultural uh, thing. And I think they understood that. Um, you see, there was no way to emphasize, particularly the written word. You know, we have highlighting, we have uh, capitalizing, capitalizing, we have underlining. Uh, we have bold print uh, versus uh, normal. Um, in those days, they didn't have that. And so the only way that they really had was two, re- repetition or exaggeration. Okay? So let's end with a prayer. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts. But at the same time, we want to be realistic in our thoughts, in our minds, in our our hearts. Help us understand what it is that you want us to understand. To hear what you want us to hear. And to follow through and do what it is that you want us to do. There is so much need out there in the way of charity. There is so much need in the way of recompense for sins committed. There is so much need for praise and honor and glory being given to you, all of which is neglected through greed, through pride and selfishness. So help us to open our minds and our hearts during the remainder of this Lenten season to truly understand our relationship with you, to improve it, to hear what you have to say so that we follow through and complete what it is that you ask of us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.